If you're new with us, we are working our way through 2 Corinthians, and we've got this week and one more week as we finish it. If you're just jumping in now, it's okay, because what Paul is doing in this uh, section of Scripture is really two things. He is summarizing uh, topics he's already talked about, and so you'll get a good uh, grasp of, of what he's been talking about in the letter if you're just now starting. And then secondly, as you probably picked up on, he is preparing to visit this church and he, he wants them to put things in order um, before he gets there. Uh, and in all of it, there's some really good uh, lessons, truths, principles for us in our ministries and in our relationships uh, with others. And so it's a very practical section of a, of a kind of a narrative in this, in this letter. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we jump into it. Father, as we often pray, but not without sincerity, but wholeheartedly. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, this is the time of the year that a lot of people are traveling, uh, camps, conferences, vacations, visiting family, uh, mission trips, and so on. And as you prepare for an upcoming trip, uh, how many of you know that that can be a bit stressful? as you think about uh, what, what will happen once you reach your destination. So some trips are not as stressful. Sometimes you're going on a beach vacation and, and you need to remember to you know, pack sunscreen and do some stuff, but uh, ordinarily that's a trip that you look forward to. Traveling for work is kind of boring at times. Uh, it can be stressful as you perhaps have to give a big presentation. If you travel for maybe a funeral, then that requires a, a different type of, of preparation as you prepare for that experience. Sometimes though you're traveling to have a meeting that's going to be weird and awkward and tense and you don't know how it's going to, uh, how it's going to play out. You've got this knot in your stomach thinking about what's going to happen once you arrive. It's that kind of trip that Paul's talking about here in going to meet the Corinthians. He doesn't know how this visit is going to turn out. You notice that he says twice, chapter 12, verse 14, chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time that Paul has visited the Corinthian church. First visit, he planted the church, stayed some 18 months. Second visit was an emergency crisis visit, and it did not go well. Uh, Paul left, then wrote uh, what he calls a severe letter of correction, and now he's prepare, preparing to, to be there for this third visit, and really, you might say the whole letter of 2 Corinthians has been building to this point. He's trying to disciple them and teach them and defend himself and keep them away from false teachers. And when he arrives, he, he wants to see the church harmonious and healthy. But he's got some concerns. He's got some concerns about the Corinthians. Jared Wilson says cheekily, the two kinds of Pauline epistles are these. Number one, we are heirs through unfathomable grace to unimaginable glory. And two, I am, as a personal favor, begging you sick little freaks to act normal for five minutes. <laughs> and we've seen both of those in 2 Corinthians. We've seen incredible passages about the gospel, and we've also seen the frustration that Paul has with this church. But all of it is for their good. It's for their upbuilding, and it's for our upbuilding as well. Now, a spoiler alert, I've already mentioned this, but we know from Romans 15, 25 to 26, the visit apparently did go well, and that's encouraging. He says that uh, when he arrived, Achaia, that's Corinth, they were happy 
to participate in this offering that he was taking to Jerusalem. So Paul eventually makes it to Corinth. He writes Romans from Corinth. Quite a context to write a letter that's that significant. Um, and says that the churches are on board, and that included the Corinthians. And so while we know uh, we're going to have relationships that can be difficult and rocky, and we will have conflict, there's also hope that God works through His truth, and as love is expressed, as we're patient with one another, as we bear with one another, God can do wonderful things through cantankerous Corinthians. And so... Let's be encouraged by that. There are five topics, I think, that Paul addresses in these verses that are topics previously discussed, but I think he, he casts them in a fresh sense, and, and they're very significant for our lives. Okay, number one, Paul talks about his apostolic authenticity. He does his little Johnny Cash thing. I admit I've been a fool for you in verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. <laughs> and what Paul's talking about is the way he's gone about this discussion of whether or not he's a real apostle, he calls it a fool speech because he thinks it's foolish to have to defend himself and he thinks it's foolish also to lay out all of your accolades. And as we've noticed, he actually didn't lay them out, or not many, he laid out his weaknesses and his afflictions, but all of that was done simply for the good of the Corinthians. You force me to, to speak like this, he says. And then he says, you ought to have I ought to have been commended by you. I shouldn't have had to defend myself. I should have been supported by you. I should have been commended by you. And here you can see the hurt in the Apostle Paul. This is Paul's most vulnerable letter, 2 Corinthians. He was a theologian, missionary, but he was also an emotional man. And what he's referring to here is an incident in which Paul, on his second visit was opposed at least by one individual, probably more, and the church did not have Paul's back. They were passive and fickle, and they were drawn to that which is novel, false teachers. And Paul says, I should have been commended by you, but I wasn't. And he adds to that hurt, verse, the next sentence, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. <laughs> Again, it's this awkward balance of trying to defend yourself but not be braggadocious about it and, and have a good theology as you're doing it. So he says, I'm not inferior to super apostles. That's his sarcastic remark for false teachers who were bragging about all their accolades, that big, showy, impressive feats. But Paul says, I'm not inferior to them, even though I'm nothing. And what Paul is recognizing here is that all of the work that, that he's been able to accomplish, his power doesn't come from himself. It comes from Christ alone. And we could all say that this morning. We are something in creation in that we're made the Imago Dei. But we know spiritually, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit apart from him. So Paul's trying to say, I'm a real apostle, but I'm also nothing. <laughs> Christ is everything. He adds in verse 12, I did some stuff. You guys know about it. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. So not only were the Corinthians not remembering Paul's ministry and his message, but they were also forgetting the miracles that they witnessed. These miracles that gave credibility to the apostles. We see a number of them in the book of Acts, don't we? We see Paul in Acts 13, 14, 15, 16, and 19 healing people. 
these signs were performed as a way to give credibility to uh, the message as a sign of the new covenant age breaking in. Very similar uh, language, by the way, to the language of the Exodus. Signs, wonders, and mighty works, that's the language used when God did miracles in the Exodus, in the Old Covenant. So there's a continuation here of God's activity at work in the world. And God put forward His, His power through these apostles through various signs, wonders, and miracles. God, of course, con- continues to do wonders and miracles in the modern age. But in this apostolic time, it was a very significant aspect that gave credibility to the fact that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead and he was Lord and that the kingdom of God is here. And Paul says, you guys saw this. But what I've found encouraging this week is the other phrase he says, I did them with the utmost patience. So that is, he did it in the midst of suffering and affliction and mistreatment, betrayal, and I think that's a great word for all of us. A mark of any great Christian leader in any context is endurance. He did it with patience. He speaks of his sincerity in verse 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? That's Paul's way of saying, I didn't take money from you. We've already covered this. I didn't burden you. So he says, forgive me. Like this was the strangest criticism about a preacher you've ever heard. Paul didn't take money from us. He he didn't ask for money from us. But the the Corinthians had listened to this spin narrative of the false teachers that probably was along the lines of, well, he didn't take money from you, but you know that collection in Jerusalem. You know he's going to pocket some of that. He's not taking it now. He's going to take more later. That's why later in the text he says, "You, you think I'm crafty. You think I'm deceptive. Actually, it was all for your good. I didn't want to burden you. You should have been the one that, forget, that, that, that asked for my forgiveness. But that's not the way it went, and so Paul here is misunderstood. I think it's important. This is a, this is a wonderful little passage on interpersonal relationships, right? Our most sincere efforts sometimes will be interpreted negatively by people. They just will, especially in today's society. But take heart. Jesus had that same experience, the most misinterpreted person who ever walked the earth. When he's performing miracles, they're saying, oh, he's doing it by the power of the devil. No, it's because he's compassionate and he's God. And here Paul is saying, I didn't take money from you. I don't have some crazy agenda. I didn't want to burden you. And so Paul here is having to, again, express patience and grace with these Corinthians. He is a real apostle, and that's why we read the Bible and we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Second topic is Paul's fatherly love. He's also spoken about this uh, previously in the letter. As he goes on to say, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you. I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Here he's just doing, you know, making a general statement about how God has ordered the world. And Spiritually, Paul sees himself as the Corinthians' father. And so fathers don't go around taking their kids' money, right? Like, hey, you work at Chick-fil-A, Joshua? Uh, uh, hand over some money, pal. No. I mean, I'll take a chicken biscuit every now and then, but uh, you know what I'm saying? He, Paul says, I don't want your money. I want you. 
And, and that's, that's, that's that fatherly care. And he's, he's like, I'm not going around trying to take stuff from you. And then he makes this wonderful statement about Christian ministry. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That is a wonderful one-sentence statement about the heart of ministry. You could you break it down in four parts if you wanted a four-point sermon on one verse sometime. It's selfless, right? These are aims of Christian ministry. We serve selflessly, joyfully, passionately, and patiently. It's selfless in that Paul is saying, I'm spending myself for you. True love invests in others. That's what, that's what love does. It spends itself for the good of others. Selfless. It's joyful. He says, I most gladly do this. And so let's remember that when we're asked to serve in childcare or hospitality or the greeters or in other ways of service. You guys didn't laugh at the other examples. Right? A touchy spot there. Most, most gladly passionately. Look how passionate this language is. I'm going to spin myself. That's awesome. Now, of course, we need balance when we read verses like this. You need to rest. You need a Sabbath. But I feel like we always got to put that qualifier out there because I think in a comfort-laden society, the sin of apathy is more accepted and more overlooked than we want to admit. Yeah, you need to rest, but this life is short, and we want to spend our lives for Christ's glory. We want to give everything to the one who's given everything to us. That's, that's what the Christian life involves. It involves passion. Jesus was a man of zeal, and apathy is a sin to be repented of. We were saved, Paul says, to be zealous for good works. Therefore, if we're not zealous for good works, something is wrong. And we need, we, need to, we need to deal with that. And then he serves patiently. I just get this by the fact that Paul is saying this not about the Philippians, who he calls his joy and his crown. He says this about the Corinthians. He continues to invest in them gladly, even though they, they're making up stuff about him, basically accusing him of being a thief, of not having integrity, of not having a real good speaking ability. He's not impressive. How do you respond to all of that criticism? Paul says, I'll most gladly spend myself for you. You just marvel at Paul's patience. And we take away the fact that sometimes you may not receive thanks from the people that you're investing in. That's true in friendships. That's true in relationships, in parenting, and in ministry. But this is a great summary of our goal. Let it, let it be burn on our hearts today. Latter part of verse 15, he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? What he means by that is, I'm not taking money from you. I'm loving you more, and you're in turn loving me less. You should have been reciprocating that kind of love. And so I think what you learn from, from Paul here is patience. And it doesn't mean Paul was perfect. That's, that's not the takeaway. But it seems from the rest of the letter, the Corinthians lacked discernment. And they did not treat the apostle faithfully and fairly, compassionately. They should have commended him, and they didn't. But I think the Corinthians show us, while well, Paul shows us patience, they show us how to ruin your relationships. So if you want to know how to do it, it's basically this, these points. Be fickle and be suspicious. 
That's how you ruin them. Which is not how 1 Corinthians 13 tells us how to love. Where Paul says there in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, that is, assumes the best, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's how we want to operate. Kevin DeYoung puts it strongly on this point when he says, it is better to go through life getting hurt once in a while and being disappointed by others once in a while than living a life of suspicion, always putting the worst possible construct on people's motives, always interpreting people's actions in the worst possible light, always listening to the, for the worst theology in your friends, always imagining your friendships are less than they seem, always fearing that your friends may not be your friends. And he says, so in the spirit of Christ, bear with one another and not cultivate this kind of suspicion. Well, that's a great word, and that's what Paul mentioned in verse 16, the suspicious spirit of these Corinthians. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. There's, Paul has something up his sleeve by not wanting to, to take financial aid. They, they call him words that we, we call Satan, crafty and deceitful. He, he's not being honest with you. And so they made up false charges about the Apostle Paul. And that too is something you will experience if you live a faithful Christian life. It's happened throughout centuries. Christians have been accused of all kinds of things. We've been accused of, of being atheists because we don't have a temple. We've been accused of being cannibals because we take the Lord's Supper. We've been accused of being uh, guilty of incest because we marry a, a brother or a sister, not biologically, you know, spiritually. That's Kentucky. But uh, I say that affectionately as, as one from there. Um, I know of no case, by the way, of a real brother or sister. Just cousins. Just first cousins. Okay? But I, I digress. Um, so they're looking at Paul <laughs> and come back now. Uh, and, and saying, well, he's, he's got something up his sleeve. And then Paul, in the last two verses, I won't read them there, he says, I didn't collect the money by myself. I sent Titus. I sent the other brother. And we, we didn't take advantage of you. There was, there's no tricky business going on. We weren't faking sincerity. And again, it's just this tired, exhausting process that Paul is, is having to try to convince the Corinthians he's the real deal and they shouldn't uh, go the way of the super apostles. And we marvel at the fact that Paul never canceled the Corinthians. He never put them on mute. He, can't, he kept spending himself for them. And it's a challenging example. All right, number uh, three, Paul's purpose of upbuilding. Verse 19 is a really important verse because it really summarizes, um, you might say, the whole letter of, of what Paul has been doing when he says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? And at one level, you read the question and say, yes, you have been defending yourself, but for what purpose? It, it wasn't simply to refute slander or to make himself look better. In fact, in the next Passage we'll look at, Paul's kind of like, I don't care what you think about me. I care about you and your health. The purpose of this defense wasn't those purposes, but rather it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and here it is, all for your upbuilding, beloved. In other words, I think defending myself as a real apostle is the best possible thing I can do for you. It's the greatest expression of love, and that is a good leader. That's a faithful Christian. What is the best way to love these people? And in this case, he had to go about it this route, but his purpose is to build them up. 
And that's our purpose as Christians, to build one another up. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Or 14, 26. Let all things be done for building up. How much of our lives would change if we daily ask ourselves the question, who am I going to build up today? <laughs> and I think, by the way, that's why a lot of Christians don't have a lot of joy. As it's been said, they, they, they have a half-hearted Christianity that, that makes them feel some guilt, but they don't go deep enough and passionate enough to get to the joy that, that comes from wholehearted service. The, the joy is in the service. The joy is in the building up of others. Half-hearted Christianity is a miserable Christianity. But the giving up of ourselves, the spending of ourselves for other people, for their upbuilding, that's when we really experience the, the joy of the Christian life. So how do we build people up? Let me give you three quick ways. Number one, build up by showing up. Part of building people up is simply being with them, being in their lives. There's no substitute for embodiment. No substitute for being with people. I love Second uh, John, verse 12, when John says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In other words, our joy is not complete if we are not together physically. Writing is wonderful. Being on a Zoom is wonderful. Being together is beautiful. That's what we're called to be. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we are made in His image. So we build it by showing up. Secondly, we build it by using our gifts. Our gifts are not for ourselves. They're for the building up of the church. Our gifts are not to build our own platform or to look impressive. Our gifts are to be used for the building up of the church. That's why we have the gift in the first place. So while, you know, the church needs you, you or uh, while you need the church, the church needs you because we need each other's gifts to build each other up. Thirdly, we build up by giving thoughtful encouragement. And here I would just encourage you, as your day begins, ask yourself, who am I going to build up today? How am I going to build up? As you plan to, to join on a Sunday for worship, Lord, help me build someone up today in their most holy faith. All right, number four, Paul's pastoral fears. I'm going to run quickly here. Paul knows that there are some obstacles in the way. There are some problems in Corinth that if they don't get fixed, to, to put it simply, he's going to have to exercise church discipline. And this grieves him deeply. And so he gives them time. He gives them the truth, and he gives them time to repent so that when he arrives, he doesn't have to do that. And as I said in Romans 15, it looks like they got things in order. So praise be to God for that. But he mentions three particular fears. The first one is that he fears seeing sins that divide the church when he arrives. And those are listed there, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Quarreling and jealousy are sins that he mentioned in the first letter to the Corinthians that was causing the party spirit among them. Disorder has been all through the Corinthian correspondence. And so if you want to look at a list of sins put concisely that divide churches, here's your verse. Quarreling. That is, having an eagerness to fight. I was reading Proverbs just this morning. Proverbs has a lot to say about these sins, especially sins of speech. 
Proverbs 20, verse 3, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. By the way, it's, I think it's a good practice to read Proverbs daily, preferably in the morning, before you go out the rest of the day and make a fool of yourself by quarreling with people. Jealousy, that is what fuels the anger and the hostility often. Slander, directly related to this letter, what they're saying about Paul. Gossip, also tons of false chatter about Paul. Satan often uses gossip to divide the church. Other Christians. Conceit, an ongoing problem in Corinth, which is why Paul continues to say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And disorder. That's the result of all of these sins. And these are sins, church, that we as believers should continue uh, to repent of. Right? What is repentance? There's a brokenness. You have an awareness of it. There's a brokenness, but then there's change. And there's no change. If there's no change, there's no repentance. We are not meant to live with a conscience that's not clean. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It means that when we're aware of the sin, we repent of it. That's the only way you maintain a clean conscience. And so it is God's grace to show us these sins so that we may be aware of them, grieve over them, ask the Lord's help that we may change and be different, be people who build people up and not divide. The second fear is humiliation, verse 21. He fears that when he shows up, God may humble him in that he's going to mourn over what he sees. And then thirdly, sins, sexual sins that he fears that are being tolerated by the church still. He fears seeing that. And those sexual sins were so pervasive in Corinth. And it was just normalized, much the way sexual sins are normalized in our day. But the church has been washed. We're to pursue holiness, abstain from sexual immorality. And then Paul pivots in verse 1 of chapter 13 and makes a strong appeal to the rebellious and teaches us some valuable things, I think, about church discipline when he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is, there are witnesses that will establish the validity of, of, the, of those who committed the offenses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, I warned them now while absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. So they're saying that Christ doesn't speak in Paul. And Paul ironically says, yeah, he does, and you're going to find out. It's not what you're hoping for if you don't repent of these sins. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Christ is present among his church. Right, The seven churches in Revelation. Christ walks among the lampstands. Christ is present among his church, and if you don't repent of these sins and put things in order, you are going to experience the power of Christ in a way you don't want to experience. So there is a healthy fear of Christ that is involved in our pursuit of holiness. Now notice what Paul just did there. There there are four, just really quick, four quick principles on church discipline that drawn out of this narrative. Number one, church discipline involves a love that is grieved. Paul hates to even think about this. He says, I don't want to mourn. That's, what I, that's the spirit that I would do it in, grief. He wants the church to be healthy, to flourish, to be harmonious. Secondly, church discipline happens when sin is blatant, clear, and destructive, and there's no repentance of it. 
Time and space are given for repentance. Paul has given the Corinthians time and space. He's not disciplining them in haste. He's pleaded with them, and so that's what we do as well when we see a brother or sister walk away from the Lord. We plead in a spirit of gentleness and love. Thirdly, church discipline is substantiated by evidence. It's not based on hearsay or rumors. And that's a very important point because people can say anything about you. Like they're saying about Paul, he's a thief. And that's why he brings this verse up from Deuteronomy. It must be substantiated by evidence. And finally, there is a time when the waiting period is over. Paul says, if you don't repent, I will not spare them. And again, the great encouragement I think you see out of Paul's appeal and his ministry here, based on Romans 15 again, it seems like they listened to Paul. And that's, the, that's, that's what we want. We want restoration in people. That's the whole point of discipline. It's all born out of love. It's born out of a love for people, a love for the church, the good of the church's witness, and Paul puts it on display. Finally, number five, Paul's power through weakness. This is the last topic, and Paul has already addressed this one, and it's a big one in the letter when he says of Jesus now, he, he goes from saying, hey, Christ is among his church, and he will act if, if you guys don't repent, and then he goes to the cross and the resurrection, showing and illustrating the power of Jesus. But the first aspect of power is unique. That is, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. It, at the cross and resurrection, power was displayed. The crucifixion looked like weakness. It looked like, to the eyes of people, the death of a pathetic man who was a blasphemer, perhaps. But we know that God was unleashing his saving power at the cross. It looked terrible. It looked like another death of a victim on a cross. But we who are being saved, Paul says, for us, it is the power of God. And he was crucified in weakness, but now lives by the power of God. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is alive, and he reigns over all. And we, we, we stand in awe of him. Paul's putting this picture before them to see the love of Jesus and also the power and authority of Jesus. And he is the power by which we, we, we rely on. When he says, for we are also weak in him, that as we adopt the same lifestyle of Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, who didn't, didn't look outwardly impressive. We are united with him in the weakness, but good news, we're also united with him in the power. For we are with you, we, while we are with you, we live with him. There's that great idea of being synced up with Christ. We live with Christ by the power of God. Now, there are multiple ways you see this displayed. Just think in your mind of, of a Christian act, a Christian ministry that doesn't look impressive, but it has transforming results. You've got, you got a faithful grandpa just gently and warmly opening up Romans talking to a grandchild about the gospel. And that kid believes the gospel. It's quiet. It's not on the news. It's eternally life-changing. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The world doesn't see power rightly. That is what Corinthians is trying to teach us. We are weak in that we're frail. We have, we have problems. We're clay pots. But we have the power in the gospel. So we unleash it. And people are changed by it. 
weak saints have a strong Savior. (laughs) He is the resurrected reigning Lord of glory, the incomparable Savior. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, what practical truth we have in this portion of Holy Scripture. We see just the concern for the church that we should all share, this great goal of building each other up, this great commitment of being spent for the glory of Jesus, and the call to repent. And so we pray, Father, you would purify your church, unify your church, keep us from the sins that divide, keep us from sins that are normalized, that we may be salt and light, a city on a hill. Lord Jesus, we bless you for what you've done for us, being crucified in weakness and now living by the power of God and allowing us to get in on that. We're grateful for all that we have in you. Be honored now as we continue in worship, we pray in Jesus' name. The church said, amen, amen. Thank you, church.